You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Isn't it good to be together on Sunday mornings, just worshiping together? And if you're a guest with us, we really are glad you have made it here this morning and that you are with us. Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you will turn to the letter of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 is our scripture text for today's sermon. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Last Sunday... We began a new sermon series entitled Freedom in Christ, the Glorious Gospel of Galatians. And we started off this study last Sunday by looking at the first five verses, which really make up the greeting and the introduction to this letter. And today, we're going to look at the next five verses, which begin the body of the letter. So we're going to read verses 6 through 10. Churches, I read these and I invite you to follow along. Let us remember this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. May God bless the preaching of his word. There are certain letters that are still being read by others today, even though they were written a long time ago, and even though they were written for a very particular purpose at a very specific time in history for a very specific audience. You see, some letters transcend time. Though they may have been written a long time ago and for a certain group of people, they they transcend time. Maybe because of who it was that wrote the letter makes the letter live on. Or maybe who the letter was written to makes the letter live on. Or maybe it was the purpose in which the letter was written. One such letter that is still referenced today and has been recited even in movies was one letter written to a, ma- a, a woman named Lydia Bigsby. And I want to read this letter that was written to Lydia 
Bixby. It is a short letter. It's only 138 words. And you will find out in the end who wrote this letter. And it'll be very clear why this letter not only was written, but why it is still known and spoken of today. Dear Madam, I've been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of a republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost. And the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours, very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. 138 words written many years ago. But that letter still lives on Today, as you can guess by the words of sincere condolence from President Lincoln, Mrs. Bigsby's lost five sons on the battlefield during the Civil War. This, this letter requires little to no explanation in regards to its context. Why was it written? It was written by the commander-in-chief to not only express sympathy, but to express thanksgiving and gratitude for her sacrifice and the sacrifice of her family. But what's most striking about this letter, even though it is short, it's the sense of emotion that's conveyed in this letter. As soon as you heard that line about why it was written, didn't your heart immediately melt for Mrs. Bigsby? Five sons lost on the field of battle. And can you sense from this brief letter, the, sin, the sincere anguish of President Lincoln, along with the heartfelt gratitude that he expressed. Can you see why this letter still lives on today? All these years later, this letter lives on. Friends, when I think about Lincoln's words to Mrs. Bigsby in this letter, I'm reminded of Paul's words to the churches here in Galatia found in verses 6 through 10 that we just read. You see, the letter of Galatians was written in order to address an urgent crisis that was taking place in the early church. And after reading these verses, we immediately know why this letter was written. Much like the letter written to Mrs. Bigsby, we don't have to guess. Huh, I wonder why Paul was writing this letter. These verses we just read made it abundantly clear why this letter was written. And just like the other letter that we just heard Lincoln wrote Mrs. Bigsby, it, this, this letter is filled with emotional intensity. You immediately, after hearing Paul's words, picked up the emotion that he wanted to convey. See, it's really obvious from the opening lines of this letter 
that something has gone horribly wrong in the region of Galatia. And the Apostle Paul has been personally affected by it. It's not just a problem in general. It's a problem that he feels personally. Listen to how the late preacher and Bible scholar John Stott really captures the mood of this passage and I think really the mood of this whole letter. He says the following. After greeting his readers in every other epistle, Paul goes on to pray for them or to praise and thank God. Only in the epistle to the Galatians are there no prayer, no praise, no thanksgiving, and no commendation. Instead, he addresses himself at once to this theme with a note of extreme urgency. Did you catch that? If you know any of other Paul's 13 letters, usually after his greeting, he thanks God for them, he prays for them, he, he, he commends them, nothing here. Right out of the gate. I am astonished. I am astonished. What, what was taking place among the churches here in the region of Galatia that raised such alarm? What, what was it that was going on that caused Paul to feel this way? Well, the best way I know to answer that question about what was taking place then and why it's relevant for us today is to ask and answer the following three questions. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline. There's really three questions we need to answer. Here's the first one. What was Paul astonished by? Verses 6 through 7. Who was accursed? Verses 8 through 9. And whose approval was Paul seeking after in verse 10? Let's begin with this first question. If we're going to understand this passage and its significance, not only then, but today, we, we've got to begin by asking this question. What was Paul astonished by? Let me read verse 6 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice this, not only does the absence of the usual prayer, praise, and thanksgiving communicate the mood of this letter, so does the first word used in this opening of the body. See, the first word in our English text is I, but the first word in the original Greek is this word astonished. It's the first thing Right after you get out of this greeting, it just hits you, astonished, Paul says. You feel the emotional intensity, not only the lack of greeting or the, of, of thanksgiving and prayer and commendation, but this word hits you. Now the, now, the word being used here by the Apostle Paul that we translate astonished, it actually means to be filled with amazement or wonder. Paul's obviously using it negatively instead of positively here. So why is he astonished? What, what, what appears to be going on that would leave him not only astonished, but communicating it with such strength? Well, he was astonished by how quickly the churches in Galatia were turning from and deserting him who had called them in the grace of Christ. 
That's what he was astonished by. He was astonished by how quickly the churches in Galatia were turning from and deserting the one who had called them into the grace of Christ. In other words, Paul was really taken back. You can, you can sense it in his words. He was taken back by how the Galatians heard the message of the gospel and received Christ as their Savior. And yet, notice this word, they quickly, they quickly deserted the one who called them. Now, why use that word quickly? Well, most commentators on the book of Galatians, they, they would say it's probably within the time span of a year or less that those who had heard Paul's gospel are now turning aside to believe a different gospel. So in, it, in a year or less, after hearing Paul preach in their towns about Jesus and them saying, we believe and we follow Christ and we're saved by grace through faith, now, in less than a year, Paul gets word that all many of them are now turning away and going back to the old things they used to believe. And he, he is undone. He is astonished. They were turning aside to believe a different gospel. Yet, as Paul makes clear here in verse 7, there is no other gospel than the one he proclaimed to them and the one they believed in. Look at verse 7 again. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Apparently, there were some other religious leaders who were in Galatia. We don't know if they were there when, before Paul got there. But after he leaves, they begin to confuse these professing Christ followers into believing a different gospel than the one they heard Paul preach. So what were they doing? How, how were they distorting the gospel? It appears they taught certain parts of the gospel that Paul preached. So it's not like they just said, hey, everything Paul said, silly, count it out. They took parts of what he said, and then they altered the other parts of the gospel. That's what the word distort means. They altered it. They said, okay, this part was true. But Paul didn't tell you this part. Aren't you glad we're here? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fill in the rest of the blanks. Glad for what Paul told you, but he didn't serve you with things that you need to know. John Stott, the commentator I quoted from a minute ago, he said the following, kind of giving us an understanding of what was going on there. He, he described it like this. The false teachers, they did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation. But they stressed that you must be circumcised and keep the law as well. In other words, you must, you must let Moses finish what Christ has begun. Or rather, you yourself must finish by your own obedience to the law what Christ has begun. You must add your works to the work of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. That's what they were teaching. If you really get down to the heart of the matter, that's exactly what was being said in Galatia. And Paul called this false message another gospel. And yet, it is no gospel at all. And why is it no gospel? Remember, the word gospel means good news. The gospel is good news. 
And is it, it is not good news, friends, for someone to tell you that all you have to do to be right with God and to be forgiven of every sin, all you have to do is place your faith in Christ alone. Yet sometime later, you discover that isn't enough. That isn't enough, you're being told now. After being told, you want to be forgiven of your sin? You want to be made right with God? You want to be justified? All you have to do is look to Jesus alone. And now you're being told, no, that's not all. You must keep certain religious rules and rituals in order to be justified before God. But that's exactly what was taking place in Galatia. And it was confusing the the churches there in this region. Let, Let me illustrate it. Like this, I have a friend who recently experienced something which, by the way, he gave me permission to share. They will remain nameless. They gave me permission to share this because it illustrates this point so well. This friend of mine recently placed an ad online. According to him, the language on the website in which he was placing the ad It appeared to state that the first time you take out an ad using this online platform, they would give you up to $500 of free ads in order to gain you as a customer. Now, that that really isn't that much. If you know anything about advertising, $500 isn't that much. So to give that for free, it kind of entices you, gets you in, because then all of a sudden you start seeing, oh, wow, people love this. People are seeing this, and then you're hooked. Okay. It wasn't until he received the bill that he found out it was actually only after you spend $500 could you get the free $500 of advertisement. Now, this guy's a smart guy, so it, it, it was very tricky language. See, what appeared to be free wasn't free at all. But hear this, church. The gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached and the New Testament declares, it is free. No strings attached, no hidden fees, no fine print, it's free. Any other gospel is no gospel at all. Place your faith in Jesus, repent of your sins, and you will be Forgiven. End of sentence. Period. That's the gospel. The message that the false teachers were promoting, however, was a distorted gospel. It was a distorted gospel. And notice, notice what was at stake if people who once believed in Christ started to believe this other gospel. Look back at verse 6. Don't miss this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different What's at stake? Why is Paul astonished? 
Why does he not play games? Why does he not have any pleasantries to start out? He just comes out swinging. I am astonished because you are not holding fast to this gospel. And by doing that, you are turning from the one who called you. That's serious. This is no silly, small thing. Let me put it like this. To distort the gospel of Jesus Christ is to desert the God of grace. That's what the word turn means. It means to desert. You once were faithful and now you have deserted. You have deserted the God of grace. Do you see what's at stake if we get the gospel wrong? We're not just turning away from the gospel. We're turning away from the God of grace. Turning away from the God of grace. See, the gospel, friends, is more than a message that you and I believe in. The gospel calls you and I to turn to the God of grace. See, the gospel isn't just some message. You believe a few points. You, you walk an aisle. You say a prayer. And you're saved. The gospel is God. And you're coming to God. So to reject the gospel is to turn from him. That's what's at stake if we get it wrong. And that's why it's such a big deal if someone teaches a gospel other than the gospel we found in Holy Scripture. And those who do, we're told, are a curse. That brings us now to our second question. Who was a curse? Verses 8 and 9. Let me read these verses again. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse. Feel the strength of it. Let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. In verse 8, we hear Paul speak with the mo- in the most sobering way and with the most striking, startling words. Words that are meant to grab us by the collar so that we understand the severity of what's being said. Paul pronounced a curse on anyone who preaches a different gospel, no matter who they are. Now, for the sake of clarity, I don't want to assume that everybody understands this language of curse. A curse is not a horrible spell that a wizard or a witch places on you. That's a different kind of curse. This is, this is a curse that's opposite of a blessing. So the letter begins with this curse. Notice how Galatians ends. Galatians 6, 16, Paul ends with a blessing. Saying opposite of what he just pronounced this curse in. He says, it's For all who walk by this rule, who all who keep to this, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he starts out with this curse. You leave the gospel, there's a curse on those who lead those people astray. But if you hold fast to it, peace and mercy be 
upon you. See, a blessing is a pronouncement of favor from God. A curse is a pronouncement of judgment. And in this context, in this case, the word Paul uses to pronounce judgment on false teachers is the worst possible judgment imaginable. He doesn't just say, you're probably not going to live long. He doesn't say, you're probably going to be walking down the sidewalk, fall, and break your leg. Here's the curse. Those who teach another gospel are eternally damned. That's what the word means. Damned. To hell with them is what Paul is saying. Strong language. No playing around. No mincing words. Eternally damned. Now, before pronouncing this curse, he mentions himself, you may notice, and he mentions angels. And he basically makes this point, even if one of them, angels or even Paul, were to preach another gospel, they would deserve this same curse. Now, let, let, let me start with the angels first. What, what, what's the reason for him using them as an example to say, even if an angel preached another gospel? Well, some have speculated over the years, this has to do with the source of false teaching being received. Maybe this was something similar to what we hear in Mormonism today. I, I think that particular interpretation may be reading way too much into the letter. I don't have any reason to believe that maybe that's how they would receive their different gospel was from an angel. I think he mentions an angel to make a point. A very strong point. Even, friends, Paul, it's like Paul saying, guys, let me just think of this crazy hypothetical. Even if an angel right now came down to you, an angel preached a different gospel, let them be damned. Even if an angel, even if an angel was to do that, they would be cursed. He even says that if he himself were to do this, he would deserve the same. Paul was saying, I used to teach that before Christ opened my eyes on the road to Damascus. And if I was to leave this gospel and go back there, let it happen to me. It would be true of me. See, the point being made here is simple. Don't miss it. It doesn't matter who the messenger is. What matters is the truth of the message. It doesn't matter if you heard it from Paul, you heard it from an angel. The messenger is irrelevant. It's the message they preach that matters. Now notice what he does in verse 9. He's not done. In verse 9, Paul moves from making a general point to then looking at a specific group he has in mind. He goes from hypothetical to actual. He goes from saying, imagine that I was to do this. Or imagine if angels were to do this. Now he's looking at them, knowing what's at stake and saying, if you have heard a gospel from anyone else saying opposite of what you originally heard from me, let them be a curse. So he, he gets specific and he looks them in the eye, so to speak. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Friends, Paul states emphatically that any departure from the apostolic gospel 
isn't a minor deviation. It's damnable. There are many things that we can differ on even as evangelical Christians. But the gospel isn't one. It's, it's not a minor deviation to start playing with, with the gospel. It's damnable. It's, it's at the core. It's the center. Everything else may not be unimportant, but it's not the same as the center. You get the center wrong, you get everything else wrong. And friends, herein lies two lessons for us to learn. Here's the first one. The authentic gospel is the apostolic gospel. How, how do we know then, Josh, that we're not believing a gospel that isn't the true gospel? Well, the authentic gospel is the apostolic gospel. Do you know what that means? The way we evaluate the message we have heard must be compared to Scripture. Does this line up with the Old Testament? Does this line up with the New Testament? Does this line up with what Scripture says? I don't care how motivating, moving, amazing the message might have said. If it doesn't line up with this, it's false. I don't care how many people are in attendance at that church. I don't care how many millions of people watch them on TV. I don't care how many books they sell at a Christian bookstore. If it's not the gospel, it's wrong. And how do we know if it doesn't line up with Scripture? Can I just stop here and say, what a gift we have in the letter of Galatians. Are you aware of that? I, I was made aware of that as I was studying and I got to this point, I just had to stop and thank God for letters like Galatians. How kind of the Lord to give us this letter. He, he didn't just give us one book. He didn't just give us one gospel. He didn't just give us one letter of Paul. It's like God gave us as many letters, as many genres, as many ways to say, okay, I want to make sure I say it from every angle. You can see it from every point. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Here, here's what you need to do to believe. Here's what you need to know so that you are protected. So that's the first thing we take away. Here's the second thing. The messenger must be evaluated by the message, not the other way around. The messenger must be evaluated by the message, not the other way around. I just want to call on John Stott again. Listen to these words. All who reject the apostolic gospel no matter who they may be, are themselves to be rejected. They may appear as an angel from heaven. In this case, we are to prefer apostles to angels. We are not to be dazzled, as many people are, by the person, gifts, or office of teachers in the church. They may come to us with great dignity, authority, and scholarship, and I would add personality. But if they bring a gospel other than the gospel preached by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament, they are to be rejected. And listen to this last line. We judge them by the gospel. We do not judge the gospel by them. Well said. We judge them by the gospel. 
we do not judge the gospel by them. Now that brings us to this third and final question. It it, it brings us to this question of whose approval was Paul seeking after? And verse 10 kind of takes a minute to to kind of reorient because there's the question, is, is verse 9 ending this section and verse 10 starting a new section? Or does verse 10 belong to verse 6 through 10? And I believe the answer is verse 10 is really a bridge. It, 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 it's coming out of this passage and it's leading us into what we're going to hear next week. So let me read verse 10 again. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Did you notice what Paul did? He began with some rhetorical questions. He asked these rhetorical questions here in order to make a loud statement about his overarching ambition. And why is he doing this? Because as we learned last week, the only way that you could undermine Paul's message is you had to undermine Paul as a messenger. And there are those, these false teachers, who are most likely questioning Paul's motives by calling him a people pleaser. That's what they're saying to him. You you caught a little bit of it last week when he says this gospel is not through man or through a man. Now he goes on today and he's going to go on some more. You just keep seeing, he's saying, hey... I'm not a people pleaser. It's almost as if they're saying, Paul says what he says and does what he does at different occasions to please those so that they'll follow him. And Paul scoffs at that idea with these questions. Oh, really? So so am I pleasing man or am I pleasing Christ? Am I pleasing man or am I pleasing God by what I'm doing? He's basically making a loud point. Christ is the one he's seeking approval from. That's why he's saying what he's saying. That's why he's doing what he's doing. However, the approval that Paul was seeking after is not the kind of approval that requires you to come to someone hoping to be accepted. That's not what he's doing. He's not seeking approval from Christ because if if, if he does enough, maybe Christ will accept him. See, our relationship with Christ is based on his grace, not our performance or good deeds. The kind of approval that Paul is speaking of here in verse 10 is the kind of approval that seeks to honor and praise someone we owe so much to. See, Paul's not trying to approve, uh, seek the approval of Christ. He's going, oh man, maybe if I do enough, he'll accept me. Paul knows what he deserves. And he knows that everything he's received is opposite of what he deserves. And that he has been freely forgiven. He now wants to to please Christ because he owes so much to him. See, Paul was indebted to Jesus. Don't don't lose the, the weight of this word servant. Did you know how he ends? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. My translation, ESV, it says servant. I, I, think, I, I don't think that gives the strength of the language. It should be a bondservant or a slave. That's the word. He is saying that he 
is indebted to Jesus Christ. But not out of obligation, out of gratitude. I am a slave of Christ, but not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. Now, Paul's example ought to motivate us as we're aware of two essential things. Paul's example, if we really just step back and we pay attention to what we just have read in this letter, this is where it gets practical. Okay, we've looked at what it said then. What does it mean now? Well, two things are essential for us to take away if we want to hold fast to the gospel and we want to remain committed to the God of grace. Here's the first thing. We must be aware of our allegiance to Christ. We must be aware of our allegiance to Christ. Listen to these words. From John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. The context here is that many have heard Jesus teach. Some are following. Many have seen his miracles and are not professing him. And that could lead you scratching your head going, how in the world could you see Jesus and still just stand there with your mouth closed? Well, here's the answer. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There were some who saw Jesus, heard Jesus. But they say, if we profess who we think he is, we we could be removed from our position of standing in the synagogue. And John drops the mic and says, that's because they loved the glory of man more than the glory of man. Of God. Friends, being a people pleaser can keep you and I from pleasing Christ. That's sobering. Being a people pleaser can actually keep us from pleasing Christ. I ask you this question is this currently a temptation you're struggling with right now? Is there an area or is there a sphere of your life where you you ought to be more outspoken? You ought to be more clear about your relationship with Jesus, but out of fear of man, you're you're, you're taking some steps back. Just going to keep my mouth closed. I ask you this question. Do you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory of Christ? This was actually one of the surprising themes of this letter for me. As I began to actually study it last year in preparation for for preaching it now, that was one of the things that struck me in these opening chapters is how much Paul talks about the fear of man and people pleasing, that, that if we care so much to please people, we cannot please Christ. Here's the second thing we must be aware of. Not only our allegiance to Christ, we must be aware of our amazement of Christ. Brothers and sisters, 
step back for just a moment and look closely at this passage again and notice how it began and notice how it ends. Remember how it begins? He says that if you distort the gospel, you desert God. So the emphasis is on God, not just a set of beliefs. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, he speaks of the grace of Christ and the gospel of Christ. And then he ends in verse 10 by saying, I am a servant of Christ. Put all that together. And do you hear what he's saying? If you step back and you look at this from 30,000 feet, here's the simple point. The gospel is about Christ. It's not just a message we believe in. It's not just some doctrinal truths we hold to. The, the, the gospel is about Christ. Sinclair Ferguson said it so well. I was struck by the implications of this paragraph. He says, the benefits of the gospel, justification, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, they must not be separated from Christ, who is himself the gospel. The benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. They cannot be abstracted from him. As if we ourselves could possess them independently of him. But how often do we speak that way? How often do we think that way? I'm saved by justification by faith. No, you're saved because of Jesus. Who died so that you could be justified by faith. The doctrine of justification doesn't save you. The slaughtered lamb who was raised from the dead saves. That's why we're justified. So let us not be amazed about doctrines and miss what those doctrines are pointing to. They point us to Christ. We must remember that salvation doesn't come through Jesus. It's found in Jesus. It's not just Jesus did something and now he dispenses it. He is the means of salvation. And keeping this in mind, brothers and sisters, it ought to stir our affection for Christ. One of our seven shared values as a family of church, of church as a church and as a family of churches is to be gospel-centered. Well, here's what I think the letter of Galatians teaches us about what it means to be gospel-centered. Being gospel-centered means far more than just talking about the cross and atonement and justification by faith and on and on and on. Here's what we discover in this letter. Being a gospel-centered church and being a gospel-centered Christian means that you and I live each day amazed by Christ. That's a gospel-centered church. It's not just that we, under, we all understand justification by faith. We all, we all you know, have gotten all of our theological things all figured out, and we all walk around, and that's what unites us. No, it's Christ and Him crucified. And we're amazed by Him. We're enamored. We're undone by what He's done for us. Church, this is what it means. This is what it means to be a gospel-centered people. The letter of Galatians is going to keep pointing us that way. Yes, we're going to hear a lot about justification by faith. We're going to hear a lot about many of the glorious doctrines that are important for us to understand. But at the end of the day, it's not those doctrines that save. So it shouldn't be those doctrines that make us get excited. It's, it's, it's Christ. So let our hearts remain stirred by Christ. 
And this morning, we have the opportunity to continue to express our amazement for Jesus through communion and through song. So let us pray together and transition now to communion.